Pod. Hello and welcome back to BNSSG Peds Pod. I'm Ruth Bowen. I'm a Bristol GP working for the BNSSG Training Hub, bringing child and young person education to primary care clinicians. Today we're going to be exploring the topic of nocturnal enuresis. Firstly, we'll be taking a trip to talk to Brenda Cheer, the specialist continence nurse for the National Bladder and Bowel Charity, ERIC. She's going to be talking us through a systematic approach. We'll then be joined by general paediatric consultant Dr JC Sconce, who will compare to her approach, considering managing nocturnal enuresis in children with complex needs, red flags and referral processes. Brenda, do you mind introducing yourself? My name, as you said, is Brenda Cheer. I'm speaking to you today as Eric Ness. So Eric is the Children's Bowel and Bladder Charity. It's a national charity. I've been working as paediatric specialist continence nurse for Eric for the last 10 years. Amazing. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Hi, uh-huh, you're welcome. So if that's all right, we'll just work through three cases that guide us through some of the key learning points. Perfect. Yeah. So the first case, we have a mother who presents with her four-year-old, Eva, who's been dry by day for 18 months but is still regularly wet at night. Mum's concerned something might be wrong. How would you approach this case? What advice might you give the mother? The first thing I would say is, don't worry. Mm -hmm. It's normal to be still wet at four years old. But what we want to do is to really look at the way that Eva's bladder and bowel are being managed and to promote a healthy bladder and bowel. So what does promoting a healthy bladder and bowel mean? Well, Constipation in childhood is really incredibly common, but often it doesn't get diagnosed until way down the line because people just assume it's just, yeah, that they poo twice a week and it's normal, it's fine, but actually that's not fine. So often there is some constipation and because of the close proximity of the rectum to the bladder, then if the rectum's full of poo, then it's going to reduce the potential capacity of the bladder and there's no way that child can be dry through the night. So we want to be really, really suspicious about constipation because parents don't often present saying, my child is constipated. They're much more likely to present saying, my child keeps wetting themselves. And we have to follow that back and say, okay, if we're going to talk about wee, first thing to talk about is poo. So healthy bladder and bowel, be suspicious about the possibility of constipation. What's the fluid intake? Every child needs a minimum of six to eight cups of drink a day, suitable cup size for the child, all the basics that we know. But actually, parents and families often don't know. And they say to you, oh yeah, they drink really well. But we need to be a bit more suspicious again about that, get the detail of it. Quantity, the way the drinks are spread out through the day. What are they drinking? Are they including caffeinated drinks? And the third thing I'd want to do is to think about the way she's accessing the toilet. If she's four years old, is she dashing to the toilet, perching on the front edge of the toilet, doing a quick re and running off again? Or is she sitting down properly, relaxing, allowing her bladder to empty properly? When do we start treating nighttime wetting? Well, five years old. From the age of five, it's not that there's a magic switch, but we consider the bladder to be mature. So if the problem is persisting then... That's when we would say, okay, we're going to do something differently. But while she's four years old, just don't worry, promote healthy bladder and bowel. And the other thing we want to do is think, okay, so what are all the conservative things we can do to help her move towards nighttime dryness? And we shouldn't make assumptions. You see, as as a parent, then I would always say, yeah, well, we're going to stop drinking about an hour before bedtime. Mm -hmm. And we're going to make sure that you do a last minute wee. Go to bed with as empty a bladder as possible. But we can't make assumptions that that's what happens in every family, okay? So with our bedtime checklist, think about really promoting the drinking during the day but stopping an hour before bedtime, doing that last-minute wee. And if they're reading a book after 
getting ready for bed, then back to the toilet just before sleep. Mm. Think of that last minute wee as being a pre-sleep wee, not a pre-bed wee. And then what else do we think? We should find out from this mum. Have they ever had a trial without nappies or pull-ups? Because often parents will say, we haven't tried that because, you know, she's always wet, so I can't take the nappies off. But actually research shows that once you get the nappy off, actually they get rapidly dry. So I would certainly be wanting them to try out a nappy or pull up for two weeks. If her nighttime wetting hasn't changed within two weeks, it's not going to. Let's practice going to the toilet at night. Practice easy pyjamas. You know, if she's on a top bunk, bring her down to a bottom bunk or mattress on the floor. What you want to do is to really work on all the conservative measures. On the Eric website, we've got an advice sheet, which you can just print at the click of a button. So advice for children with nighttime wetting. And on it, there's a bedtime checklist. So what we want Eva's mum to do is to think healthy bladder and bowel, bedtime checklist. And then only if things persist, then also on the advice sheet, it says what to do. But for the age she is now, we would just say, don't worry really promote a healthy bladder and bowel, work on that bedtime checklist, all the conservative measures, and see what happens. Perfect. And saying that you would give advice on what to do if it persists beyond the age of five, yeah. what would your options be at that point? So as a start point, what I would want them to do is to do a nighttime diary. It does require some input from the parents. What they will need to do is to check Eva's bed every couple of hours during the night to find out at what point in the night she's wet how wet is she? Is she still got wee left to do in the morning? Is the wee in the morning dilute or is it concentrated? All this information document on the nighttime diary, which you can just download from the Eric website. That's what's going to point to why is she wet? There are three significant ongoing reasons why a child might be wet at night. One of them is that she might not be producing enough vasopressin the hormone we all make which concentrates our we at night. Another one is she might have poor arousability. She might just not be waking to the signal of a full bladder. Or she might have a small functional bladder capacity. You could have a small functional bladder capacity because of constipation. Or because you're never stretching your bladder up during the daytime. But because we do promote the healthy bladder and bowel first, hopefully that's not why she's got a small functional bladder capacity. So if that is an ongoing problem, then that may be that she's got some overactivity. And some children have obligatory nocturnal overactivity. We used to think that, well, if they've got an overactive bladder at night, they'll have an overactive bladder in the day. And these days we've learned, no, actually, some children just have nocturnal overactivity. So the presentation of the wetting would be very different in that scenario. We'd be having frequent small wets through the night. Completely different scenario to the child who's lacking vasopressin, who's going to flood the bed with dilute wee, probably early on in the night, or the child with poor arousability, who's probably going to be wet later on with a normal concentration wee, so it's likely to be in the early hours. These different features can absolutely point us towards this is the main reason for your nighttime wetting, therefore the optimum treatment is. Mm -hmm. So then if the main reason is your lack of vasopressin, your optimum treatment is desmopressin. Main reason is a poor arousability, your optimum treatment is a bedwetting alarm. Main reason is overactivity, your optimum treatment is an anticholinergic. In years gone by, sometimes practitioners would say, oh, my preferred treatment is the alarm. But of course, those treatments were not always going to be successful, were they? Because it's not about my preference. It's about the child's individual needs. And is that something that you would hope that we would be doing in primary care? So going through that bladder diary with them and then starting one of those relevant treatments, depending on the interpretation of the results? Yes, Absolutely. Nighttime wetting is just a common childhood condition. We should be able to respond to that in primary care. So moving on to our second case. 
Seven-year-old Reuben presents with his parents, as he's never consistently been dry at night and is continuing to have regular bedwetting accidents. He's just turned down his first invite to a sleepover as he was worried about the risk of being teased, but doesn't want to miss out. What would be your approach to managing Reuben and exploring any potential contributory factors? So the first thing I would say is just don't worry. It's still within the realms of completely normal. About 15% of seven-year-olds regularly wet the bed at night. He needs to know that. We need to support Reuben and for him to know, because one doesn't talk about the fact that you have a wee problem or a poo problem. Then for children experiencing them, it becomes a bit of a guilty secret. It's something to be ashamed of. Whereas if we can help him to understand that this is normal and there's lots to do that we can make it better. So I'm not saying it's normal, dismiss it, don't worry, go away. The message I'm giving is, it's completely normal. There's lots we can do about it. In order to support Ruben, I'd want him to have a look on the website. There's lots of stories and tips for going away at night. He's avoiding sleepovers. But if he realised that there's some information about tips for going away at night, if he realised that there are lots of products in the Eric Online shop, like washable, absorbent, waterproof sleeping bag liners, wouldn't that make such a difference? He can go on a sleepover. And if he's wet, nobody would ever know because he's got a sleeping bag liner which is going to completely contain it. There's lots of products which can actually make living with a continence problem so much more bearable. But then what else are we going to actually just get on and do? Exactly as we were talking about with Eva, I would really want to be promoting a healthy bladder and bowel. That's going to be the start point. If you ask his parents how often does he do a poo, they may well not know. By the age of seven, he's probably taking himself to the toilet, he's wiping his own bottom. He's not going to know if his poos are normal or not normal. So always, always, always suspect constipation and rule that out first. In order to do that, we might need him to fill in a poo diary, being suspicious about how much is he actually drinking, especially during the day at school. By seven years old, he might be self-managing and thinking that if I drink less, I'll wet less he's old enough to understand and I want them to understand the bladder's made of muscle. How do you get your muscles fit? Well, you've got to exercise them. How do you exercise your bladder muscles? You can't take your bladder out and send it to the gym. Oh, we need to fill it and empty it and fill it and empty it. So drink and wee and drink and wee. And really on Ruben's level, explain the importance of that high fluid intake through the day, stopping an hour before bed. So like with Eva, all those conservative measures, really go down that bedtime checklist including the need to have a screen-free bedtime in the at least hour before sleep. At seven years old, he could easily be taking an iPad to bed and we want to say no, 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 because if you do that, then it's going to interfere with his melatonin production, which is going to interfere with his vasopressin production, and we get this whole mixed picture. So all those conservative measures. Then we've already mentioned the nighttime diary. So I'd really want to do a really detailed nighttime diary. His parents may not thank us for saying to them that they need to get up every two or three hours during the night. But actually, if the outcome of the nighttime diary is that he's got poor arousability, and the optimum treatment for that is a bedwetting alarm, it's going to wake them up at night. If you want to work towards nighttime dryness, you've got to really want to do it. And that's one of the things we really need to do is to just check out with Reuben and his parents. Do they all want to work on this? And if they do, then in order to work out what's going on, in order to discover the optimum treatment. The, the nighttime diary, ideally a week, not just one or two nights. You want a nice picture built up. First time I see him, I'd want to go through the conservative measures. If problems persist, this is the nighttime diary that you're going to do. And then we can look at that together. And then we'd be looking to see, is it a bedwetting alarm? Is it desmopressin? Is it even oxybutynin? Now, 
obviously the nighttime diary is going to help us to choose the optimum treatment but we do also have to bear in mind Reuben and whether he would cope with an alarm going off some children would be quite stressed by that and therefore although the nighttime diary can help us to identify the optimum treatment we're not going to limit our treatment options to say you've got poor arousability you need an alarm we also have to think about and you share a bedroom with your four brothers or maybe he's a child who's on the autistic spectrum that the alarm going off at night might actually cause quite a lot of distress so look at the nighttime diary choose our optimum treatment and then consider whether that is the optimum treatment for this individual child and then if we change this so that Reuben had been consistently dry previously for at least six months so it was essentially a case of secondary anuresis are there any additional differentials that we should consider or anything that you would do differently with this case very much so the child has secondary wetting they've been dry for six months an alarm bell is ringing in my head something has caused him to be wet at night now. So there are a list of things that I'd want to work through. And these are there in the continence assessment form. They're all listed there for us. What's right at the top of the list in my mind is actually back to that constipation. He's seven years old. He may have moved from the infants into the primary school and may not be confident using the toilet at school anymore, have some constipation. And that's causing reducing the bladder capacity and he's wet so yeah it can be constipation creeping in and again parents may not know that at all i'd want to think about is there any possibility that it's a urinary tract infection and if it is then i'd still be thinking back to okay biggest cause of urinary tract infection in children constipation so it's always back to the bells I'd want to be mindful that it could be type 1 diabetes. Over the years, the incidence of type 1 diabetes being diagnosed because of children's nighttime wetting has increased. Sometimes secondary wetting is telling us that there's something significant going on, some psychological problem, an indication that the child has actually not got a happy home situation. I don't want us to think that secondary wetting is always caused by abuse. I do want us to have it in the back of our minds that sometimes abuse manifests itself through nighttime wetting. I'd want to think about the child's neurological condition. You know, I'd want to do all the basics first, but then I'd want to think, okay, if he's got secondary wetting, is there some neurological condition we haven't yet diagnosed? And I'd want to do a, a full physical examination. And then if we don't find anything, then we say, okay, we just treat it the same as primary wetting. You know, it could be just because he's changed class at school, he's a little bit stressed. The bit of stress he's experiencing means he's producing a little bit less vasopressin and he's wet because of that. And having Desmo for a few weeks even might just correct that. And he gets used to his new class teacher and he's back on track and everything's all right. That's really so, interesting. I wouldn't have thought of that as a treatment, yeah. actually, because there's stress and that's impacting. Yeah. yeah. Well, the he amount of vasopressin that we all produce at night fluctuates anyway. I always describe it as having like a dry line. If you imagine just in the middle of my screen, a straight line, if the amount of vasopressin we're producing is above that line, child's going to be dry below the line the child's mm. going to be wet so clearly if they're always above the line even though the amount is fluctuating then they're always going to be a dry or they're always going to be wet if they're well below the line but what many children do is the amount fluctuates above the line below the line there are some factors which push the whole line down mm. um, and one of them is just experiencing stress not getting on as well with your friends being bullied being told off by mum before you go to bed is all just going to push that amount of vasopressin down how yeah. interesting that's yeah. really helpful good yeah and then of course when you have your desmopressin it's not a magic wand so you always want parents to really understand that when you take desmopressin it's just going to supplement your natural vasopressin so if it tops it up enough that we're above the dry line you'll be dry but if it tops it up 
and you're still below the dry line, you'll be wet. Because sometimes people are just a very clear cut and they say, we've taken desmopressin and it doesn't work. It's not going to just click you into above the dry line. Ask more questions. Did it affect the amount of wetting? Sometimes parents will say, oh yeah, yeah, they, they wet less, but they're still wet, so it doesn't work. Well, the fact that they're wetting less is telling me it does work. Yeah. Okay. And then just coming back to those causes that you mentioned and therefore thinking about how that would add into our history exam and yeah. bedside tests that we would do. So you mentioned urine dip, presumably for the UTI. Yes. Also really helpful to see if there's any ketones there. Yes. Thinking about doing yeah. a BM and looking for the history of diabetes. Absolutely. Yeah. Examining the abdomen. So obviously that we quite commonly find constipation, but actually yes. something else going on in the yeah. abdomen. So any yeah. masses. If you don't feel hard stools, that doesn't rule out constipation. Children have this annoying ability to be full of soft poo. We have to look at all the rest of the history to get our diagnosis of constipation. So it doesn't rule it out. It just absolutely it doesn't rule it out. Okay. It does rule it in. Okay. Absolutely. I agree, Ruth. Yes. And then the other one that you mentioned was neurology. So looking yes. at them walking in the door, looking at their spine, checking their reflexes. Absolutely. Just to make sure we're not missing anything there. Completely. Exactly the things I would suggest. Perfect. Thank you. Apart from that, are there any other red flags that you think we should be looking out for in secondary aneurysis? No. The reason that I can say no is because anything else we might want to think about would also give us daytime symptoms. When we're taking our history, then we want to be very clear, is this primary monosymptomatic nocturnal aneurysis mm -hmm. or is there some constipation going on? Have you got some daytime bladder symptoms? And if they have, then I'd want to be looking at those first. Your first question is going to be, how often do you poo and what does it look like? Yeah. Yes. So by the time we get to really assessing the nighttime wetting, we should have ruled out the constipation. We should have ruled out the daytime bladder symptoms. And in doing so, part of our assessment will have included a physical examination to look for an underlying organic cause for constipation for daytime bladder symptoms. Mm -hmm. So by the time we get to our nighttime assessment, we've already done that. With the neurological side of things, there are still a number of children who are diagnosed with congenital spinal anomalies at five years old, six years old, seven years old. Those children have often presented with constipation from very young age. They really struggled with their potty training. Those children need to have that physical examination. There are children who are diagnosed with spina bifida at five years old. But when we're thinking about nighttime wetting on its own, primary monosymptomatic nocturnal aneurysis does not have an organic underlying cause. That's very clear. Thank you. And then if we move on to think about our third case. Yes. So 12-year-old Ben presents with ongoing bedtime wetting. He's never been dry by night. He drinks plenty of fluid, avoids fizzy drinks, caffeine or late night drinks. His bowels are a normal consistency, he says, and opening regularly. The hallway's lit, he's got easy access to the toilet at night, so he's doing all the things that you've chatted to him about before. He's tried an alarm and desmopressin at different times and it's not succeeded, and he's feeling really frustrated. His parents are looking for guidance on what to do next. First of all, I'm going to say exactly the same as I have with the other scenarios, to just reassurance that this is common, but mm. also reassurance that there's a lot that we can do about it. You've told me that his bowels are a normal consistency and opening regularly, but I would still be suspicious. Probably doesn't particularly want to talk about this, but actually I want to really know how often he's having his bowels open. What does it look like? That's so I would be theme, really... Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So similarly, just talk to him about his bladder management, about his fluid intake, whether or not he's sitting down to do his wheeze. Children, young people empty their bladders better sitting down. 
and relax and take his time over doing his wee. So I'd want to make sure that we can tick every box on the conservative measures. And then I'd want to ask him, okay, so you've tried different treatments, the alarm, desmopressin. Were you trying those in response to a nighttime diary? Or was or, it the doctor's favourite? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because <laughs> okay. that's really going to help me know whether that was done in a sensible manner. Yeah, Whether we were bringing in the right intervention at the right time. If a nighttime diary wasn't done, then I'd definitely be saying, well, let's do that next. And then I'd want to then choose the optimum treatment. So the predominant features are these. Therefore, the optimum treatment is, say, desmopressin. I'd want him to be aware that although desmopressin is not cumulative, it's all excreted eight hours after you've taken it. And yet, the evidence is that if it's taken every day for three months, then actually the child seems to have a better effect from it. So it may be when he took desmopressin before that he took it for a few nights and it didn't do anything, so he stopped. But actually, what I would say is, even if it doesn't seem to be doing anything, take it every single night for at least three months, and then we'll see what's going on then. We don't really know why. People hypothesise, is it because less urine is being produced and the bladder gets used to being able to store that wee better? People don't really know. And there is evidence behind that, yes. is there? How yeah. interesting. It okay. is really interesting. At the end of three months, I wouldn't want him to stop even if he said it's not working. What I'd want him to do is to say, okay, let's do another nighttime diary on the desmopressin mm -hmm. and let's look at the features of your nighttime wetting now. Because it could be that he's got more than one factor making him wet at night and that the treatment is going to be combination treatment. Mm -hmm. So it's not, I've tried the desmopressin, I've stopped that, it didn't work, I'm now trying the alarm. It's a logical approach that means that we're going to look for the predominant cause, we're going to choose the optimum treatment, we're going to stick with it, and then we're going to say, okay, let's do another nighttime diary on it. And then let's see, it could be after three months on desmopressin that the amount of nocturnal urine production is reduced, but he's still wet. The features of his ongoing nighttime wetting will help us to understand, is this because he's got some overactivity? Mm. Would he benefit from some oxybutynin as well? Or if there's no suggestion of that, then would he actually benefit from using an alarm in conjunction with the desmopressin? Does that make sense? It does make sense, yes. Excellent. And you've mentioned the bladder instability and using oxybutynin a couple of times. Yeah. Would you just use oxybutynin or would you, as you would with adults, go down the route of bladder training at the same side alongside that? Yeah, so before introducing any, any anticholinergic, then you do your healthy bladder first. Eric describes your promoting the healthy bladder in terms of four steps. The first step is avoiding constipation. Yes. The second step is being mindful. Is there any chance that a urinary tract infection could be causing these symptoms? The third step to a healthy bladder is getting the drinking right in all its facets. Quantity, the way the drinks are spread out, what you're drinking, etc. Mm -hmm. And the fourth step to a healthy bladder is relaxing to void. But if they presented to me with that overactive picture, then the first thing I would say is four steps to a healthy bladder. Once they've really worked hard on those four steps to a healthy bladder, then I would say, okay, you've still got persistent symptoms. The next thing I want to do is to do an intake output chart to actually know exactly what the bladder is doing during the day, exactly what the drinking pattern is, and exactly what the bowels are doing at the same time. And actually not just a tick saying the child's done a wee, the child's had a drink. Measure the child's wee in mils, write it down. Analysis of the intake output chart is going to guide me. If I can see that um, volume of fluid being consumed is still insufficient, then I'm going to say, well, do you know what? Concentrated wee really disturbs the way your bladder behaves, so you need to go and drink more. Or if I can see that they're drinking caffeinated drinks, etc. So you can look at all that. But if I've still got this pattern of frequent small wees, at that point, then I would think, I wonder if this is overactive. 
overactivity. We stop talking about instability and we talk about overactivity. Yeah? Okay. So do you have any key take-home messages? Well, you won't be surprised if I say always suspect constipation yes. <laughs> and really find out the detail of things. Is there any possibility you could have a poo traffic jam? Thinking carefully about the terminology we use will actually get us much better information. And pictures and alongside that, presumably. I, even with adults, I find that actually getting the Bristol stool chart out can be quite revealing. Yeah, exactly. Similarly, really, really work on the drinking. Normalise talking about bladders and bowels. Let's talk about wee, talk about poo. Then we're going to connect with the child so much better and then they're going to follow our advice and then we're going to get them all clean and dry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and are there any really useful leaflets on Eric that we haven't spoken about yet that you wanted to take the opportunity to sign? Yeah, I think so three that I would draw attention to were the advice for children with constipation, advice for children with daytime bladder problems, advice for children with nighttime wetting. So if you look at those, you'll see that there are then some other key resources that link off those. If we think about that child with the poo traffic jam, not mentioning the word constipation, mm-hmm. um, then the two key resources, one of them is how to use macrogol laxatives. Yeah. Because so often we prescribe macrogol laxatives, but actually if we don't take the time to look at the detail of how much water it's got to be mixed in and how we encourage children to drink it, then children are often not successful in their treatment and a parent's guide to disimpaction. Perfect. Thank you for that. And I think for me, the key take-home messages from our conversation today is healthy bladder and bowel, healthy bladder and bowel, healthy bladder and bowel, just going through that. Absolutely. And actually starting at that point, even if they say, I've done all this stuff already, is actually have they really go through it in detail. The bedtime checklist, I found that really helpful as well. Yes. There's a lot of factors from there that I think about, but actually I think there's a lot more that I don't think about within that checklist. So it's worth actually printing that out giving that to families it really is and that bedtime checklist is is part of the advice for children with nighttime wetting and I think we have to recognize the fact that a significant proportion of children who present with us Mm. with nighttime wetting will never need desipressin or an alarm but they might need that hall light put on so it's just those simple things and making sure that you're taking all that into account and I also found it really helpful actually talking about the bladder diary at night to actually work out what type of nocturnal anuresis yes. is this and therefore do we go down the route of the alarm desipressin or do we think about an overactive bladder toxibutanin? so that's yeah. a really helpful clear way of laying that out. Excellent. Very systematic. Yes, if we think about the systematic logical journey and just progress through we're much more likely to identify the optimum treatment and we're much more likely to get a child who's dry. Perfect, amazing. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ruth. This would be a good time for your coffee break, but if you're ready and raring to go for the second part, let's go and have a chat with General Paediatric Consultant JC Sconce. Good afternoon. Do you mind introducing yourself? So my name's JC Sconce. I'm one of the consultant paediatricians at Bristol Children's Hospital. Thanks so much for coming here to talk to us today. You're very welcome. So, would you mind just going through a little bit your approach to nocturnal anuresis? What do you go through in your history and examination? What is your typical systematic review? So, I won't repeat everything that Brenda has said, but essentially talking about when they were dry in the daytime, at what age they achieved that, their fluid intake, what their bedtime routine is, and then particularly about how much they wee at night and at what points of the night and how frequently that happens. 
I would always ask the child for their thoughts and feelings on what's happening as well as the family. It can be quite a point of distress for both the family and or the child. In terms of examining them, we would tend to, in secondary aneurysis in particular, do a physical examination. We're essentially looking at their abdomen to palpate fecal masses. We will look at their spine and we'll look at their lower limb neurology. And that could be fairly broad examination of looking at their gait, lower limb reflexes and just assessing power and tone. Very rarely do we find a cause for a spinal issue, but it could be their presenting symptom. And so therefore, do you need to have a look and assess it? If you do find that there's a problem with constipation, I would want to know why this child is becoming increasingly constipated or recurrently constipated. And it may well be that it isn't simply diet related and that some thought needs to go into the causative problem for that. We know fluid is a massive associative factor and that would play into both parts of the history that you'd want to know they were taking enough fluid. But also you would consider undertaking a celiac screen, a thyroid function test. And generally when I take blood from a child at this point, I will do a full blood count, liver function and kidney function. If they have been seen with the services that Brenda offers, you often get their diary and that can give you a clear idea. So once you've got that, you decide how you're going to approach it. We will talk about whether they are doing the daytime things that Brenda's mentioned, so drinking plenty, emptying their bladder regularly, doing the right bedtime routine. And if they're not and they are old enough, and I'll come on to age in a minute, we would consider talking to them about different adjuncts. And if they've already tried the alarms, which they often have by the time they reach us, we would talk about medication. And that could be desmopressin on its own or in combination with a bladder stabiliser such as oxybutynin. I would always advise that you do things one step at a time. So if you're treating constipation, treat the constipation first and then review as to whether any other medications need going in. If you're going to add in desmopressin, do that for a trial and then add in the oxybutynin if and or needed to see what their response has been. I will always have a conversation with the family about the effects of it and how effective it can be and the fact that it only works alongside the lifestyle changes in terms of fluid hydration and going to the toilet regularly. I think that's probably how I summarise it. That sounds very comprehensive. Thank you. So if we now think about a couple of cases, patients who've got more complex needs, the mother of a seven-year-old, James, who has Down syndrome and moderate learning disability, is concerned about his nightly bedwetting. He's got no daytime wetting and denies any dysuria or urgency. How would you assess James and do you think your approach is going to be different at all to how you would have tackled the previous case, Reuben? James does present different challenges because with Reuben he was older of normal development and so therefore you can engage Reuben into what we are asking them to comply with. James you may have more difficulty with that and I think one of the things to unpick right at the start is does James have an issue with this or not? Is James quite happy to be in pull-ups and if so I would be quite reassuring to mum and say there is no rush. It is still normal inverted commas for some children to be wet at this age. If, however, it is causing James and his family significant distress, then we would talk about how to approach it. And you would still have the same stepwise approach. You don't change anything by the fact that he's got some learning needs and has a diagnosis of trisomy 21. But I would be aware of the fact that they do have association with thyroid problems. And so therefore, I would have a lower threshold if Mm. constipation was part of the picture to look for celiac and thyroid problems. That won't be the direct cause of bedwetting at night, but it may be a contributing factor if that is part of the history. And I think... 
I would emphasise to James's mum about positive reinforcement with behaviour and that that is much more likely to bring about a change in James's behaviour, as in all children. So it's praise about whenever they drink enough, praise about going to the toilet when they should be, praise about helping with the management. They're aware of what's happening and why it's happening and not a punitive method of trying to educate James and his bladder. So it may well be that actually once you've had a conversation with mum and say it's normal, you leave it and see what happens. Offer to see them again in a year or two years if it's becoming an increasing problem for them. And then otherwise, if they wanted to go through the treatment steps, would it be very similar to the previous cases that we've been discussing? If the behaviour treatments aren't making any difference, then you may have a lower threshold to go in earlier with medication. And each time you try a medication, you're doing it for a trial period. The nice guidance is six to eight weeks, but realistically, I would do three months. And then there is some guidance about not taking the medication away in one go, but weaning it down. So desmopressin sublingual, you start off at 120 micrograms and you could go up to 240. And you could then decrease it in that stepwise fashion. An improvement on desmopressin is either the volume of we they're passing, the frequency see both of these going down is a success Mm -hmm. and if you need to retreat them I would give them gaps in their treatment anecdotally the older they get the better they respond to it and I think that's their maturity kicking in as well as us supporting them medically I often leave it till after they're seven before even discussing medication okay that's really helpful thank you And are there any particular resources that you might signpost mum to that are slightly different just because of James's extra needs? Yeah, so there's the Bladder and Bowel UK website that does have specific information on it about children with additional needs. And children such as James who may be in a specialist school will have a school nurse that will be very experienced in this they will have a community pediatrician and so actually those may be avenues of support they may have a community nursing team if James is in a mainstream school you may not have access to all of those and so again we could use our community nursing team to help support and the school nurse to a certain extent but I would suss out what the family have got access to and use what's there If James and his mum want to start treatment, you would be absolutely advised to go ahead and do that. If treatment continued to fail and you were considering using two therapies such as oxybutynin alongside the desmopressin, then we could see and assess him and see if there's anything else that needed to be undertaken. We occasionally investigate children with nocturnal enuresis mostly they've got daytime enuresis as well with either urinary flow studies and bladder emptying studies that can give us a bit of an idea as to how well their bladder is functioning. It can help direct with your medications and it can help give you some idea of how long they might need medicines for and it sometimes helps the families see a change in those results. They're further on down the line really. Okay so if we go on to think about our next case so your next patient is Elijah You see that he's about to turn five and he has autistic spectrum disorder. His parents are looking for advice. Elijah's only been dry by day for a year and nighttime nappies are wet every night, but they'd like to support him to be dry at night. Mum is confused by conflicting advice on neurodiversity forums, so she'd like some clear guidance. How would you approach this case? So I'd start off similarly to the James case, try and understand exactly what's driving them to want to make a change. Brenda's mentioned this already in that one of the first steps is when they are in pull-ups or nappies overnight is to take them out of it to help them be aware of it. He's only been dry daytime for a year. I don't know quite how significantly affected he is by his ASD. But every child is different. And again, I would just take that logical approach of trying to find out, is he drinking enough? Is he constipated? 
does he have the maturity to know when he needs to go for a wee or has he been taught to be dry in the daytime by going to the toilet regularly and so therefore he may not have all the bladder reflexes there mature enough and again he's only just five i would explore that further with the family and see how much distress it was causing them he may well respond to alarms but some children with asd find the noise very disturbing and you may skip that stage completely and go on to discuss medications but I don't think I would do anything particularly different with him. There are some other resources out there. So on the CCHP Serona website, there's a wealth of information for children with neurodiversity and how to manage their behaviours, some parenting techniques. There isn't anything else specific I think I would use. And is there anything around potty training that you think would be more tricky for children with neurodiversity? Are there any extra challenges that those families might encounter? Yeah, these children often take much longer to become potty trained. So a very common scenario we see is that they are not wanting to poo on the toilet and will stool hold and they will then have urinary accidents both daytime and nighttime secondary to that behaviour. And so then you're not treating the enuresis, you're absolutely treating their bowel management. We will make sure they are on laxatives, which can be a challenge to administer in these children, and a lot of calm reassurance about using toilets, positive encouragement. At this stage, if we're really struggling and they're older, then we can use our specialist continent services that are available to help with that ongoing regular input. If they are hitting secondary school age, you really want to be offering them the most support that you can get to them before they hit a secondary school environment, particularly a mainstream secondary school. Thank you. So Brenda was chatting us through when we would think about desmopressin versus antimuscarinics versus NLR. Would you agree with her overview of those? And are those the three treatments that you would be choosing between? Yeah, I think they are. So the alarm would be your first stage and then you can use desmopressin in combination with it. I think if they are passing urine multiple times a day and you get a real feel for a bladder instability, then you may use oxybutynin as a first line. I would always do one change at a time and if needed, put the oxybutynin in with the desmopressin or add the desmopressin into the oxybutynin and reassess after each change. Go up on dosages before before adding in a second medicine. So the desmopressin, if you're starting at 120, I would go to 240 first. And the oxybutynin, there's a range of dosages between 1.25 and 5 milligrams, and that can be between two and three times a day. And certainly once I've had children stable on those medications, we've then weaned back down to the lowest dose that keeps them stable before then coming off. Those are absolutely my top two medications and the alarm. The third medication that's mentioned in the NICE guideline is a tricyclic mipramine. It gives a suggested dose of between 25 and 75 milligrams once a day. It's not something that we have routinely used within secondary care and it may well be that it's being used more frequently in older children and or adults. The only advice I'd give about using tricyclics is a baseline ECG and secure storage of the medication at home because of the risk of an overdose. But those are the only medications that we tend to use. And that's very much your third line. So that's probably the point at which we would be involving you anyway. 100% we would ask to be seeing those. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So it can be quite confusing, all the different types of referral processes related to nocturnal enuresis and which direction we should send children in. Can you talk us through that at all locally? What services are available and who should we be sending where? Remedy has some quite clear guidance as to who to refer to and when in terms of the specialist continent services and geographically which ones are based where. Within general paediatrics, we will see secondary enuresis and we will also see difficult enuresis, although currently not commissioned for it. Before Serona took over community paediatrics within our area, this was looked after by the community paediatricians and there's been a grey area. 
We do have some access to a limited amount of psychology and community nursing and we can write to schools to help support them providing children with toilet passes, allowing them access to water throughout the school day. If there are specific needs around a child, particularly with ASD, around needing to encourage them to go to the toilet, then we can write that specifically in the letter. School nurses are another avenue of support. If you are looking at more problematic daytime and nocturnal enuresis, then we will see them under the age of 16 and we investigate them with urological studies. If they are 16 and over, then you will be going through the adult services, which would be urology. And gynae will see some of the older girls with significant daytime urinary incontinence. Okay, thank you. What are the key resources that you use as your go-tos with families? So the ERIC website, essentially all of our information, we direct all families to that. And the Bladder and Bowel UK does have some specific resources available. And then the last area just to think about before we close is red flags. So Brenda touched Mm. on this a little. Have you got any thoughts on the red flags that she's discussed? Or are there any other red flags that you think we should always have in our mind in primary care? I think finding an underlying cause in secondary neurosis is rare in terms of a physical finding. We would always ask about home situations, what's changed, is this a psychological thing? It may well be a physical thing such as constipation or a nerve innovation problem, which is what we're hoping to not miss. If you are logical in your approach to thinking about that, S234 is what you need to be assessing. And so look at their spine. There's nothing else in the history that's making you suspicious of something else changing in this child. It is a rare finding, but it is something you need to do. Most of the children that have a neurological condition causing secondary neurosis will present in another fashion. It is something that you need to look for, but it isn't common. However, I do think it gives parents a huge amount of reassurance when you have examined the child and to know that there isn't something seriously underlying wrong. And often at that stage, you can see a lot more engagement with the medications, with the lifestyle changes. And we would always undertake those examinations. There will be a mixed feeling about doing blood tests. My colleagues will be doing blood tests to make sure that they're not massively constipated secondary to an underlying condition. But there's no other real blood test that you need to be undertaking in that sort of scenario. If you've clearly got muscle weakness, then you're going to be going down a whole new investigative avenue, including muscle enzymes, MRIs, muscle biopsies, neurologists. So I think be aware of them, consider them, assess for them, explain that you've looked for them, and then go back to first principles in terms of treating the enuresis. And we did chat earlier about home neglect. Is Mm -hmm. there anything that you would add there? Anything else that you would want to look for or be cautious of? Yeah, so there's two sides of the coins to this, in that if secondary enuresis is caused by safeguarding issues, abuse, neglect, anything going on in the home that you're not aware of, you need to try and unpick that when you're taking the history. And I think in the older children... It is all about taking history from them by themselves and asking. You may not definitively find anything out, but something may give you a clue. And if that is the case, then you'd need to escalate appropriately through the safeguarding team and or duty social care. The flip side is that if they are bedwetting and they're being chastised for it, parent comes in and says, this is their fault, I've had enough of this, very cross with the child. You get a feeling that the family don't have the right attitude to it, aren't sympathetic. That can turn into a form of safeguarding concern. If they're chastising the child, if they're making them sleep in wet sheets or physically hurting them, some of that will come out in the history, but it's worth thinking about when you're examining where something's not quite right, taking the time to ask a bit more and do a bit more of an examination, do a quick top to toe, make sure there's no other marks, concerns, height, weight them. And as I say, always, if they're old enough, take the opportunity to have a conversation with them about it. I think that's it. Thanks very much.
Thanks for joining us today. NICE guidelines talk about starting with conservative measures, as Brenda and JC discussed, then working up through alarms to desmopressin, then oxybutynin, and finally trialling imipramine as a fourth line. It was really helpful hearing practically the systematic and very logical approach by a general paediatric consultant and specialist anuresis nurse with Eric, who is an organisation we'll all be very familiar with. My key take-home messages are those conservative measure leaflets to signpost families to, the importance of a nighttime diary and how useful that can be about logically deciphering between which is likely to be the most effective, out of alarm, desmopressin and oxybutynin, extra challenges that children with more complex needs such as learning disabilities or neurodiversity might encounter, and red flags, considering causes for constipation, spinal pathology and potential safeguarding concerns. Join us next time when we'll have Katie Pike and Deb Marriage talking to us about asthma. See you next time. The contents of these podcasts are for educational purposes, aimed at primary care healthcare professionals only. They do not substitute professional medical advice or consultations with healthcare professionals. Information presented is the opinion of the healthcare professional interviewed based on their interpretation of best practice and guidelines at the time of the interview. It is the listener's responsibility to compare information given with up-to-date national and local guidelines. The BNSSG Training Hub, Ruth Bowen and interviewees are not liable for any clinical decisions made as a result of this podcast.